All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, this morning, we had the, don't forget that pick, uh, great privilege of hearing from Donna Tonis. And there's just, sometimes when you listen to people teach, Megan Fate Marshman taught me this one time. She said, when you listen to someone pray on a stage, you understand what their prayer life is in their quiet place, right? You, how weird is it that they're talking to God and how comfortable are they with that? And I think even this morning listening to Donna teach, I just, I had this sense of like, I want to love Jesus like that someday, you know, like where you, um, and so she was talking about, you can get wrapped up in this knowledge of God, but if you don't know how to translate that knowledge of God into a love for God, which I think was, um, there's so many things that she taught, but that was one of the things that almost transcended the conversation in my opinion, which was how can I translate what I know about God into that love that she has, the passion that she has for God. So she talked about the way that Paul is continuing to admonish Timothy, but also to encourage Timothy, um, even using that creed there at the end. We're not positive where it comes from. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself, right? This is the power of Christ in me, the hope of glory, which is the beginning of the book of 1 Timothy, the Jesus cannot disown me because he did, cannot disown himself. And the power of Romans 8, 15, the, the, that passage that just says everything keeps getting better. Not only this, but we also get, not only this, but we also, we are now able to call out to him, Abba, Father, because we've received adoption through sonship by which the spirit now is inside of us. So how do we know, Romans 8, 30 and 39, that we will not be, uh, dismayed that we will not be betrayed, that we will not be abandoned because Christ cannot abandon himself and make no mistake, you are the very home for the spirit of God now. And that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of getting to do ministry. That's the, the fount by which we draw our endurance from. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit just to open up with uh, because it, it feels like this section just keeps smacking, like, that this text rings the same bell over and over again. Teach sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine, right? And every time, it's, it, it's almost as if this is like the broken record that Paul goes on, and it's almost like an old record player, and it gets stuck on teach sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, teach sound. And every once in a while, someone goes over to the record player and like moves a little bit. I don't really know how record players work, but I'm guessing. <laughs> Move the needle? I don't know. Someone kicks it? I don't know. Um, but for a second, the song moves on, like teach sound doctrine and make sure that you teach sound doctrine. He, he goes back. Every time he strays, he comes back to this. Right? And I think there's so many reasons for that, but I think the primary one is Paul's able to look at understanding how prevalent it is. And, and someone asked me this. I, I, get a, I get the privilege of teaching a systematic theology class to uh, people who are going to be pastors. So it's like a master's level course, which is so funny because I'm the youngest person there and I'm the one teaching the class. And so they have all these years of experience with me. And so I'm always asking them questions like, wait, how did that go? Or this one guy the other day that I was teaching, he, had, he watched Elvis Presley live. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I'm like, oh, you saw him live. That's so cool. Anyway, uh, but someone asked me this question today, and it just caught me kind of off guard. He said, do you think Paul knew that he was writing Bible? 
I think Paul had an, he had an awareness, right, that when he was putting pen to paper that he was actually writing the very word of God. Or was there some kind of a later development where people were like, hey, this guy knew a lot of things. Let's call this Bible. I think again and again, as I've been studying it too, I think Paul was well aware that as an apostle, as one sent, that he's, he claims twice to be speaking the very words of God. And he makes it clear when he's not. He says, this is my opinion. This isn't God talking right now, right? He says in the book of Romans, this is my personal opinion, right? I didn't get this one from God. Um, and so the cool part about that is this is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he keeps hitting this broken record. Teach sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine. Um, Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, just, it's a really weird interplay that um, I think we miss sometimes. When you look at a lot of classical paintings of the fall of mankind, uh, some classical art in regards to the interaction between Eve and the serpent, there's something unique that happens. First of all, Adam's almost always right there paying somewhat attention, which is just the funniest thing to me. He's always a little bit aloof, like she's talking to a snake. She always does that. You know, like he's just standing there. It's like, you know, in the Hebrew there, when it says Adam, who was with her, it means right there. He was just apathetic, I guess, to what was going on. But there's this interplay there that takes place. And um, I don't know if it's in the translation of the rules, right? How long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned? Anyone know? You're get, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell? No one knows. No one knows. Great guess. Might as well be whatever, right? Did they even start counting time before there was a need to understand the movement of things and the aging of things? Did, did they actually start counting upwards with the age? I don't think Adam and Eve were uh, born as infants, right? I think they were born probably at least at the age that they could be fruitful and multiply because that's the first command they're given and you don't, you know I mean, you know, you don't tell infants to do stuff like that, you know? So they at least had that capability and then were they then metastatic in their age? These, this is what keeps me up at night. Like, these are the issues that I struggle with at night when I'm going to bed. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, did they have belly buttons? No one knows, man. I think so. I think so just because kids ask so many questions, and I think God's a merciful God, right? And no one wants to answer that question 4,000 times in their life. Where's your, um, where's your belly buttons? So I think he just gave it to him as part of his divine mercy, but I could be wrong. I don't really know. Um, so yeah, we don't, we don't really know, you know, like uh, 11 billion years. I don't know. Right. I don't really know how that plays itself out. It says that Adam lived to be like 909 years old or something like that. But again, did they start counting time before that? Was time the same as our time? They use the word yom to dignify or signify days in that passage. But yom is also used for day to mean a thousand years at one point in the Old Testament, a, an hour and a half at another point in the Old Testament. So like, I don't know. I don't know any of those things, but this is what keeps me up at night. But so somewhere in the translation of the rules of the garden, we see Eve either not understand or Adam's translation of the rules that Eve were messed up, right? And it was simple. It was just simple enough that when Eve re-dictates uh, the mandate of the garden to the serpent, she makes a mistake, doesn't she? Maybe even an innocent one. 
But God's call to Adam was, you must not what? Eat of any fruit. You, you, you may, sorry, you may eat of any fruit in the garden, but do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die, right? The serpent comes up, and again, I, here's what I think we, we mistake a lot of times. And I think, um, I love when the scripture says, do not be deceived, like we could see it coming, right? It's the very core of deception, right? It's like someone asked me one time, Chris, what are some of your blind spots? The heck? I, by definition, have zero blind spots. For if I knew them, they would no longer be blind spots. So I am aware of none. Doesn't mean I don't have them. But how would you ask me that question? Ask my wife at the time, you know, like, <laughs> ask people who work with me. I know I have them. I just don't know that I have them. Don't know what they are. And so, uh, I just got off on a tangent on blind spots, but that's, that's another thing that keeps me up at night, definition of words. So Eve, in this translation moment, the serpent, oh, here's what I say, the, the, we don't give Satan enough credit for the idea of deception, right? This is a question I asked myself, I was driving up to Hume Lake, and I'm having an internal monologue. Um, do you think Satan's vulgar? This is what keeps me up at night. This is the stuff. Like if Satan appeared in, in some kind of form to us right now, do you think he would swear? Think he'd be charming? You think you've got God and Satan in the same room and you ask them to tell the story, they would tell the same story? <laughs> These are the questions, right? It's like when, in your youth group, you've got two kids who... They get in a fight and you listen to one kid because he's a squeaky wheel. And he tells this crazy story about the other kid is just evil to its core. It's like Hitler's offspring. Then you get them both in the same room and the story gets a little bit different, right? I'm not saying that God would ever change the story. I, I guess what I'm just saying is I think that if you ask Satan what happened, he wouldn't be like, well, I got jealous for the worship of God. And so I intentionally rebelled, right? I'm not sure that would happen. I think he's the deceiver. And I think if we let him talk long enough, we might be going... That makes pretty good sense, you know? Why would the Bible continually tell us, even as people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Right, this, I think this is the importance of living in Christian community because any of us individualistically are likely to do what? Be deceived, right? So we have each other, right? That's, that's how we protect our blind spots. And I don't, if we were to say, what, if, if you're the crafty serpent and your aim is to uh, derive worship from God to yourself, I don't think that the way that you would do it, if you actually understood modern day, Western European, postmodernistic culture, that you would walk into youth groups and deliver cocaine to students, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, I've got a great idea. Here's some PCP, right? Because the students would be like, no, say no to drugs. You know, like, you not going to do that. It, you, you, maybe for a couple students, right, who maybe have a history of that, but for the, most, for the majority of the people in the youth group, you wouldn't. You would find the smallest bit of unsound doctrine possible that at first blush just seems like a two, degree off, two degrees off of what's true. 
But when crap hits the fan in the life of that individual, that two degrees off, just like a plane trip from a Los Angeles to um, New York, if you're two degrees off, you're in North Carolina. Long enough, strong enough, what happens is sin seeps in to those half-truths, to those two degrees off of truths, to those deceptions, and then it's conflated by relationships, right? If I ask you what's the main thing that takes students out of your youth group, uh, per annum, it takes them away. I, for me, if, if all of a sudden someone fell off the map, tragedy struck in their life, and they were not equipped to deal with it, and they ran from the father instead of running to the father, or they got in a relationship with somebody, or they compromised who they were, or they were always seeking identity in something, and a relationship with a human was much simpler and less complicated than a relationship with the divine being who's made them and created them and knows them and loves them, but is invisible. Am I wrong? What's it? Anyone got a third one that's like really prevalent in yours? Sports, right? Athletics. Um, yeah, athletics, relationships. Yeah, that's for me too. Why would God introduce cocaine if sports will do? Why introduce, if it's just to derive worship from God, or to, and, and this, what does he do to Adam and Eve? He takes the true things that God says, he looks for where they had any kind of mistake, and then he just exposes it. She thought that the rule was, you can't do what? Don't touch it, or you will surely die. The command was, don't eat of it. So what we can understand is, although this would have been probably a, a, a temptation problem, they could have juggled that fruit and nothing would have happened. They could have played hacky sack with it. They could have thrown it betwixt one another. Whatever they wanted to do, just don't eat it. Maybe it was a bad day for Adam, right? Maybe he had a hard day working in the fields. I know this is all actually... Yes, yeah, conjecture, but also theologically inaccurate because the thorns and the thistles and the, the pain of work comes later on. But just go with me on this one. <laughs> Allow me to blaspheme a little bit. Uh, a little heresy never hurt nobody. I don't mean to say that. <laughs> sound doctrine, sound doctrine. <laughs> I'm only about one and a half degrees off right now, okay? So just let me go. That's like Columbus. No, it's not even down to, okay, anyway. Um, and so I, so I wonder if it was just Adam going, you know, just, well, what did God say about the tree? Just don't touch it. That's what he said? Yeah. Just don't touch it, right? This is what the Pharisees do in the New Testament. What's the law? Thou shalt not uh, covet your neighbor's wife. Oh, that's a good law. You know what? You know what sometimes what leads to coveting? Dancing. So thou shalt not dance because if thou dance, thou might covet. The Pharisees kept adding new fences. They were new fence builders to it. And Adam, and we don't know exactly why. And we don't, maybe he said it perfectly. And over time, we don't know how long they were in the garden exactly, that it just slipped Eve's mind. But that's all it took. So a lot of like Renaissance painters and a lot of medieval people, when, they, when, they're, when they're portraying this instance, they actually portray the snake, which still had hands, which is the most terrifying truth in all of scripture, Right? <laughs> From now on, the text says 3, 15, 16, 17, you will crawl on the dust, you will crawl on the dust of the earth. You will crawl on your belly for all the day. Like, what were you doing before then? Could you imagine like a rattlesnake that had arms and legs? Right? My kids brought a rattlesnake into the house. When was that? My sister's here. She's over there. She's been, she helps some of the kids. And um, we brought a snake in the house. Brought a snake in the house. I was watching football. 
And my son goes, literally, he goes like this. He goes, oh, got to feed my snake. And I was like, oh, what? And, but he's, he can do weird stuff. He's like at that weird age where he like makes weird jokes all the time, you know? It's super annoying. You're like, just stop. It's not funny. But you have to like, you know, be a parent and stuff. And, but then my daughter, Harper, who never lies about anything, she's like, oh yeah, you're snake. And I went, okay, something's wrong. Bring the snake inside. And what kind of snake is this? It's, that it's a garden snake. It's like, well, that's not, what's a garden snake? I think you mean garter snake, but it doesn't matter. Bring the snake inside. So they bring the snake inside in the Home Depot bucket, and they put it next to me on the couch. And I'm watching the game, and I forget about the snake. I just forgot. I didn't think to look at it because I thought it was a garter snake. We get a lot of snakes. I was like, whatever, I'll go throw this snake outside soon. I look down. It's a rattlesnake sitting right there. A baby rattlesnake, which is more dangerous because they can't control their venom output. And I go, what the heck are you doing? Why did you bring, this is a rattlesnake. And my son immediately, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. And my daughter goes, dad, it's fine. <laughs> He's nice. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? How do you know it's a he? I just, I'll let that one go. What do you mean he's nice? She's like, I put the water cup in there and he didn't do anything to me. <laughs> she took a little water cup and put it in the Home Depot bucket with the rattlesnake. Check it out. There's like this moment in the, it's like, I think it's like Harry Potter, like the fourth one or something like that, where Hermione explains to Ron, um, every, or explains to Harry everything that Cho Chang is going through. She's like, well, Cho Chang's probably sad because she misses you, but she's also um, in tension because she, she feels jealous of something, but she also loves you. And then Ron says, like, someone couldn't feel all those things. They'd explode. That's how I felt in that moment. I was simultaneously so mad, but I, I also feel like you, sh might, you should probably be dead, and you're not. So, like, that's great. Um, but then I get, like, the... I'm scared for my kids, you know, and then I'm like overly protective, and then I want to murder this snake, right? Like I literally posted about it, and someone's like, please don't kill the snake. I'm all, sister, that snake's been dead for hours, okay? Like, <laughs> like, I, I like, yeah. Like, I killed it like they kill vampires in Twilight. Like, I ripped it in four pieces, set it on fire, buried it in the ground, right? Like, hired a security guard to watch it, like, make sure that thing was dead. Like, please don't. On the snake, it's like, it's literally Satan's favorite avatar is a snake. Like, so just stop. But the snake stayed in the bucket because it doesn't have arms and legs. Imagine if it did, and it was just, it could talk and crawl out, and it was like, football, huh? And I'm like, oh, no! Anyway. <laughs> If you ever think, I don't have anything to be grateful for in my life, just remember, snakes used to have legs. So there's one thing. Um, anyway, neither here nor there. So, but the, the artists, they, they paint pictures, and guess what they have Satan doing in the pictures? They have Satan grabbing Eve's hand and doing what with it? Touching the fruit. Satan's going... And Eve's going, oh, no, I'm melting. I'm melting. And Satan goes, I thought you said you were going to die. See how small of a crevice it was? 
you thought that if you touched it, you were going to die. So Satan goes, huh? If God's willing to lie to you about that, what if he's withholding something else from you? Satan is clever and deceptive. And it just took that little thing that was off for him to go, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but if God was willing to lie to you about that, could he lie to you about something else? Like what, what if that fruit has some kind of supernatural power that'll make you like God? The irony of that is what? They're already like God. They're literally made in the Imago Dei. They are made in the very image of God. And do you really think God's gonna put a fruit in the middle of the garden that's gonna turn them into God's? If that was his desire for them, they had perfect communion, they had perfect community, they had perfect relationship with one another. Everything there was great, was good, it was pleasing to the eye. And yet, what does Satan do? Satan tempts them with the very thing they already had and then remarkably under-delivers. I love how one theologian puts it. They beg and plead to hear, and as their ears are open, they hear the endless screaming of humanity fallen in sin for the rest of their life. And so, Paul, I, think he, I don't think he overstates the broken record of sound doctrine. This is how it creeps into our churches. It, it's not someone walking in and going, remember how we used to think that murder was a bad thing? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. It's not how it works. It's just, it is so minute because it doesn't need to be bigger than that. Why would it need to be bigger than that? If you were the deceptive serpent, if you were the one trying to derive worship, why would you make it any bigger than just bringing someone far enough off that when relationship hits or when tragedy strikes, it's gonna derail them anyway? And too often, I think we can get caught up in this. And I hear this all the time, especially with students, particularly with the previous generation of students. Take all your theology and stuff, Chris. All your high-minded, high-brow, hypostatic union. Who is God? What's the Holy Spirit? Is it a he or is it an impersonal force? Whatever. I've experienced God. I know him. And that's sufficient for me. There's a great theologian named Jen Wilkins, and she writes this question. How can the heart love what the mind doesn't know? The heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. So, is it true? Is it true that the experience, here, here's the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, there was a man who visited one day. It was a curmudgeon old RAF fighter pilot. And he walked up to C.S. Lewis and he says, I've had it with all your humdrum and your big highbrow level theology courses. And uh, what is the, what's the justification, sanctification? What's the wrath of God? He's like, I, yeah, 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 yeah. That's for you brain people. I myself, I have seen God. I've been in the desert with him when I was a fighter pilot. I've been to the island where, where I was deserted and he was all that I had. And so you keep that for yourself. But I myself have experienced God out in his own nature. C.S. Lewis has this brilliant response. He says, in a very real way, your experience probably, and in a lot of ways, did come to a point where it was more real than you simply reading doctrine. I don't deny that. And if you look at a map of the area that you were, or a map of the entire world, and I could point to where you were on the map, and I said, would you rather have this? Would you rather have what you had? 
This is just a representation of what you experienced. What you experienced was much realer than this. It was, it was, much, it was much more uh, sensory than this. It was much more impactful, tangible, touchable, smellable. You were there. Of course, it was more realistic than looking at a map. But I ask you this question in response. Where were you? How do you get to the island next door? What's there? What if you want to travel over here? Does your experience teach you what to make of the experience that you had? Does your experience teach you how to get from one place to another? And does your experience teach you to be able to understand other experiences that you have? And does your experience simply teach you to rely on the experience of experiences to dictate what's true in your life? So C.S. Lewis says, you don't throw out experience. You don't throw out personal moments of, you know, it's what John talked about, sitting in the jail cell of Paul. You don't throw that out. That is, that is a tool that God uses to draw us deeper in communion and communion with him. But if you don't know what to make of it, you might as well be smoking shrooms. If you're just looking for some kind of an experience or some kind of transcendent high, and you don't know what to do with it or what to make of it or how to bring glory and honor and laud and fame to his name, then you don't know how to translate it and make it into something more useful. Experiences are not an ends to a mean. They're a means to an end, which is the worship of Jesus. And the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. I was hit with this today as I, as I was studying. Let me get to the, the, the passage one more. So let, let me let the passage get through us really quick. And then I want to finish by asking one question that I, that I think might be important for us as we kind of depart from here tonight. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against, this is verse 14 of chapter 2. God against, uh, reward them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value. And it only catastrophe, catastrophe against the ruins. It only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And then he's gonna define what that means, right? How, that's what we want. We want to stand before the throne of God as a worker who's been approved, who's been blessed, who's been sent, who's been apostolos, one who has been appointed, one who is worthy of the calling, Right? I want to present myself as someone worthy of the calling of God. Not by my own doing, oftentimes by my undoing, but never in my own strength. Here's what he says. How does, it, how does he define it? A worker who does not need to be ashamed, there's one, and who correctly handles the word of truth. And here's one of the biggest problems with being a youth worker. When's the last time someone looked you in the eye and asked you how your struggle with lust was going or how your, what your relationship to pornography was like or what your communion with drunkenness was in your life or what the way that you're treating your spouse is going or the, the relationship that you have with that person that's gone too far and now you don't know how to bring it back. The problem with being a youth worker in a lot of cases is we're so used to asking those questions that we have in some ways learned indignance when people dare ask it of us because we get too lofty a view of ourselves. Sometimes the response is, how dare you? <laughs> Me? But you know what? Whenever I feel like that, my natural, the reason I do that every single time is because I've got an answer to your question that I don't want to give you. It's deception. Every time. Well, <laughs> this is how we respond. <laughs> how am I doing with lust? 
uh, it's so weird. Like, people just don't ask me that anymore. Um, good? Great? What do you mean? Like, what do you mean, what do you mean? You know exactly what I mean. We all struggle with, we, we, this is something we're all walking through. I'm asking, what's your relationship to the, the mortal coil that Romans 7 talks about? You are simultaneously, Paul said, or uh, Martin Luther says, we are simultaneously et peccata. We are simultaneously saint and sinner. We are, Galatians chapter 5, we have flesh in our spirit, one what's contrary to the flesh, and the flesh what's contrary to the spirit. We have in a very real way, as Romans 7 talks about, this battle of our mortal coil and our infinite soul. What do you mean? What do I mean? Have you reached the point of perfect sanctification? Are you done? Are you complete? Right? Every time the Bible talks about perfect holiness or completion or maturity, it does so in a, in a way that is uh, presumptuously derogatory. Oh, you're one of the healthy ones, the Bible says. Oh, you've reached maturity. And we haven't. And so Paul through his apostleship and through his power and through his being sent, asks all of us, as a worker of the gospel of Christ, do you have anything that you should be ashamed of in the way that you're teaching and leading people? And our response can't be indignance. Like, I've <laughs> been a youth pastor for 45 years. Paul goes, I don't remember asking that. Is there anything you need to be ashamed of? The danger of working at the burning bush is that sometimes we forget the holiness of the ground that we stand on and the importance of the calling that we have. We're so used to it. We're so familiar with it. And for some of us, that's the deception that Satan can bring. Or it's just some kind of net positive that I've got sin in my life, but I also do so many good things. If any, I, I do so many things that are helpful for the kingdom that I'm pretty sure that this outdoes this other thing. And, uh, and this is what we were reading about even this morning, like uh, Sarah was talking about it in her breakout. Like, this is this whitewashed sarcophagus. And the beauty about being a youth worker in particular is it's not a call to perfection, right? Again, we talked about it last night, it's a call to repentance. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's a good question to ask. And I think once we get tired of asking that question about what's your relationship to sin in your life, is there anything you need to repent of and, and to turn away from? Like, Jesus isn't at this retreat right now, like in human form, you know? Like, he's the only one I don't think we need to ask that question to. The rest of us, I think, need to examine that all the time. And, me, and I'm, not, I'm not saying you people, everything I teach, I'm talking to a mirror. This is what I need to hear, and you can just listen into it, Right? and who correctly handles the word of truth. This is what it means to be one approved, okay? To walk in repentance, doesn't mean perfection, but consistent repentance, turning back to God, surrendering those things over, who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, babelos in the Greek, right? Nonsense chatter. What does nonsense chatter mean? What is the idea of nonsense chatter? The, the term here that's used really means um, chatter that makes no difference in God's kingdom. So, I, and again, I think the context of this is particularly talking about uh, are you in the position that you are for some kind of selfish gain? Are you making a difference for yourself, right? When you get finished teaching a message, do you look better or does God look more beautiful? 
Is God glorified or am I glorified? Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene, right? <laughs> it's talking about, it's, a, it's one of the most dangerous parts of a battlefield. It's these infections that spread. It can lead to amputation. It can lead to death. And what he's saying is, is he's, does, does the Bible ever say that the gospel of Christ will spread like gangrene? Does the Bible say that that godless chatter and false teaching can spread like gangrene? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And we know this, right? We work on the same student for years and years. We pray over them. We proselytize to them. We're discipling them. We're struggling. We're crying with them. We're pleading with them. And then all of a sudden we get a postcard of them when they're 40 years old and they're like, hey, just want to let you know we're doing great. Just had our first kid. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for everything you taught me. Like, what happened to you? But probably part of the seeds that we planted that God uses to plant many years ago have now taken root and it's grown to fruition, right? That process is often really slow. Even the parable of the sower and the seed, is it how quickly can a bird eat a seed that's fallen on the path? Quickly, right? How long does it take a true tree to grow? It's long, it's often dark, it's hidden, it's underneath. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a fight. It's a battle against flesh. But false things spread like poison. It spreads like gangrene. It spreads. Among them are, and then he names two people again. He's the best. Who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Here's his analogy. It's like in a large house, okay? A large house comes at a great price. He's talking about his church, right? The visible church of God. The visible church of God was bought at a, at a big price, okay? It's the price of Jesus Christ, his blood, atone, making atonement for us on the cross, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. This house came at a big price. There are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some are for special purposes and some are for common use, okay? So the differentiation, and, and some scholars will, will differ on this, but I think the most um, practical reading of this when he's talking about false teachers through this whole section is to continue that theme. That there, you're gonna, in a house, you're gonna find dishes and bowls that are supposed to be used for dogs that do not bring the, the guest the honor. When, when guests come over, you don't put out your dog bowl and go, look at this. I'm proud of this. I want you to see this, right? Get that old wooden spoon that we use to spank the kids. Oh, here it is. Dog bowl spoon, right? What do we put out? We put out our gold. We put our silverware. We put out those things. The nice thing, we put those to the forefront. And God is saying, this is the beauty of people who are teaching sound doctrine, those who are promoting the kingdom of God. They have brought my house honor. And those who teach falsehoods that spread like gangrene, they are like the dog bowl. I don't, they dishonor me with what they do. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter, being the dog bolt, will be instruments for special purposes made whole, cleanse themselves, will be made wholly useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Flee from the evil desires. Fuego. Run, right? Run as if to save your life. The Greek is right there. <laughs> Run as if someone just yelled, fire in the hole, right? Run. It's not a contemplative, I think I should go. 
flee, right? Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Don't you love what God does with sin? And maybe too often, I fell victim to this even being a youth pastor. I just kept telling students what not to do. Stop it. Knock it off. Get away from that. Stop doing that. Quit participating in that. Run away from that. I wasn't as good at teaching them what to run to, you know? And, and don't, there's this duality. Flee from the evil desires of your youth and, help me out, what does it say? And pursue righteousness that is in Christ. Uh, I think it's, I don't know, I don't know, Whitfield? I think Whitfield teaches a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Think about that phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. How do we expel sin from our life? We develop a new affection. The Holy Spirit doesn't just change what we do. He changes what we want to do. It's an expulsive power. It's, it's, it, it, if, you guys, if you've personally struggled with this or someone in your family has, that's had like some kind of nicotine addiction or smoking habit. My uncle Mike did. He passed away a few years ago. But um, he would chew gum. He, he couldn't just not have cigarettes. He had to replace it with something new to be addicted to. And this is really what the Bible talks about. You are addicted to yourself. You need to become addicted to Christ. You need to find him as beautiful as you found the sin at one point. And not beautiful in the same way. Beautiful in the self-indulgent, decrepit, sarks way. But we found Jesus beautiful in a way that is eternal. It's long-lasting. Give up what you want now for what you want most. And, and part of our job isn't just to say, stop doing X. It's learn to love Y. Don't just stop doing X but also learn to love Jesus, who is better than X. Uh, Here's what it says. Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord, have a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. I don't need to say anything else about that, do I? Right? And our students are going to watch what we're doing. Okay? If we're on Facebook picking fights with random people, whatever side of the aisle you're on, it's, it is the epitome of stupidity. If you can come up to me after this and show me a Facebook thread ever where someone expressed a bifurcating inflammatory opinion, someone else told them their opinion was wrong and their response was, oh, I just changed my mind. One time, ever. It's the very definition of an exercise in futility. Have no place in it. It it betrays the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us to do that. Because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right? This is talking specifically about us. Those who work in the church of God. We are not to be quarrelsome people. That doesn't mean we don't stand up for anything. It doesn't mean we're spineless. But it specifically is talking about when do you stand up? When someone's teaching what? False doctrine, false doctrine. And we're back to the record player. Opponents must be gently instructed. 
in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I'm going to finish with something that I was pretty convicted of today. And I, I, like, I don't use the phrase, nor will I use it here, that God told me. I don't think that at all. But I, 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 I was studying this today in my cabin, and my kids were driving me bananas. Because, I mean, it's not a mansion cabin, right? It's not a big cabin. And there's five of them. And they can't go outside because I don't need to explain to you why. And so you're all in like this room and I'm trying to study and, and everyone's whining and they're all hyped up on Mountain Dew and they won't stop moving and now they're fighting with each other. And right, it's like, that's why you let dogs outside. You go run off their energy. But what happens when you can't let your dog outside? It's a living room, it's like up on the couches everywhere. Now imagine five of those that can speak and argue and it's the worst. You're just like, and... I was getting frustrated and I was disciplining them. And I was, Leo, you got to get in bed. It was like, we're going to put him down for naps. But you got this all riled up kid trying to put him down for naps. And so I'm disciplining him and I'm punishing him and I'm doing all these things over and over again. And I come back and I keep sitting down. Why do you care so much about sound doctrine? I was getting mad at Paul because I was just at the end of my rope like, who cares? You know, <laughs> just say it once. But instead of looking at it through a lens that it's, that's copacetic and it's, it's whitewashed and it's, um, uh, it's kind of lost its heart, I, I, I was brought in my brain to 1 John, this father's heart towards his kids. Oh, what love the father has for us that we should be called children of God. The one who prodigally gives his love to us. The one who gives recklessly to, to his children. And so instead of asking the question, why is doctrine so important, what does doctrine do? It teaches us the heart of the Father. Let me ask the question another way. Why would it be so important for me that my kids know my true character? It was like this eye-opening moment where I went, isn't that the real question? Why would a father care so much that his kids were able to understand his character completely. I'll ask, I mean, I, how many of y'all have kids in here? Yeah, it's a lot. This isn't rhetorical, I'm asking you. Why do you want your kids to know your character? Help me out. Why do you want them to know? So you're even, you're already throwing it to the next level. If they understand my character, they might understand God's character. Let's say your hope is that when they get older, you have healthy adult relationships with them, that they would know Jesus and that they would love you. And again, the, all, everything that Bible says about raising a, training up a child in the way they should go, all the other things, right? Like, that's still a best practice, and that's not a guarantee. That doesn't come with a promise. God doesn't say, I promise. If you teach your kids in Scripture, they will turn out to be Christ followers. No, no. But it's the best thing we can do to try. But, the, but sin is still strong and the world is still tempting and, and confusion still sets in and trauma, and it's like, it's not a guarantee. So let me ask you a question then. Why is it important for you that your kids understand your character? Why is it important to you? Why do you care? So that when I screw up, they'll know my true heart. Now, does God screw up? 
No. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life where you thought God screwed up? I have. Lord, save my wife. Intervene. Do something. Fix something. Change something. Move something. His answer is no. She's dead. You can, you can be as convinced as you want. But you want to know what that feels like? It feels like God messed up. It's not sound doctrine for sound doctrine's sake. It's sound doctrines from the moments where I go, what the heck? That I hope is the same thing that my kids would do with me when I actually screw up, that they would go, what do I know to be true about my dad? I'm going to choose to understand what just happened through that lens rather than vice versa. Character is important to me in that. Why else? Why else do I care about my, about my kids and my character? So that when I discipline them, they know that I love them. What is discipline without love? Brutality. Authoritarian brutality. If you don't love me, you're hitting me because you're embarrassed that I've behaved in a way that embarrasses you. It's not that you love me. I need them to know that I care about them. What does that mean? <laughs> I want my kids to know my character because I want them to be like me. Now, there's a lot of ways in which I don't want my kids to be like me. I want them to be better than me. But if I was a perfect dad, would I want them to be like me? Yeah. You think God has insecurities? I don't think so. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, for I serve, for Jesus is a God who is not a God of want. He didn't make man out of necessity. He didn't make man out of a lack of communion. He didn't make man out of a lack of love. He made him out of an abundance of glory of himself. It wasn't in what he lacked. It's what he had in surplus. Man, I would want my kids to know him because I want them to be like me. And, and, and so when you, when you, when you, kind of take away all of the, um, the, the pseudonymic ideologies of sound doctrine, super important. And instead you ask, even with our students, why do you think God cares so much that you know what he's like? You want to know, like for me is like, I don't, even, I don't even know what to do with this, but I feel like I've been a nerd with theology my whole life. I didn't believe in God for a season of my life, which brought me to apologetics that led me to a deep dive into who he was and all those things. And it took every ounce of everything I knew about God on the day that I found out that Paige died to not turn away or to scream and run and never want anything to do with him or to quit ministry. In a season where I couldn't even go back to my home church and work there anymore because of a whole bunch of things that happened and just going like, where are you? And some of that happens in tragedy, what you're gonna find out is Sarah, tell me I'm wrong. No one knows what to do with you. And the people who profess Jesus, they're the worst. Because they're so afraid they're going to say something wrong, they just don't say anything. That was my experience with my own church. Where are you? Have we not been together for 11 years? Wasn't I with your kid when they had issues? Wasn't I with your family when you went through your divorce? Where are you now? Most common question, I'm sorry, I just didn't know what to say. It hurts. 
And so what do you run to in that moment? You can't just do an internal net weight of, yeah, well, they've done so many good things. No, it wasn't about them anymore. It was what I knew to be true about God. He keeps you plugged in, man. And If you don't know who he is, I truly believe this. Whatever your most firmly fixed foundation, the most base core of who you are, when your life gets cut open, you bleed the truth of whatever that is. And if we love our students, the storm's coming their way. It's coming for them. And if they don't have sound doctrine, if they don't know why God insists that his character be taught accurately, you know the heartbreak of losing students. You know it. Every single one of you has a list in your head. If you've been doing ministry for any, any period of time of students that you poured into and they've left the church. More than that, I've had students who have, left, who have left the church and then come back and written bad things about me and going, excuse me, what I did for you? And then you're gonna re... And I'm sure you've had the same experience a lot of you have where you just go, this is now gratuitous. What's going on? We feel the heartbreak. That's like the unspoken thing about being in youth ministry. You watch them grow up and then your heart breaks again. And you can do the best job you can. And still, the truth of the scripture is there. The road that leads to destruction is much wider than the one that leads to eternal life. Sound doctrine. It's God saying, I want you to know my heart because the storm's coming. Because I want you to mimic me. I want you to imitate me. Because there's going to be moments where you think I screwed up. And I want you to see it through my lens, not through the lens of your pain. And if we don't know who God truly is, when tragedy hits, we will lower our theology to match our pain. Every time. And I think that's what hit me today when I was studying this. Because I, I had such a copacetic, like, lined out, systematic. I just approached the Bible that way. Everything I do is systematic. Point A, point B, sub point one. And it just felt like, why do I want my kids to know me? That broken record then doesn't just sound like a repetitive, copacetic, uh, highbrow theology thing. It sounds like a father sitting in front of a son going, I want you to know me because to know me is better than life. What is paradise, John 17? It's that my kids would know me. What's the beauty of heaven? That the streets are paved with gold? No, it's 1 Corinthians 13, that right now we see as though in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. It is the true knowledge of God outside of our mortal coil, knowing him personally, one-on-one, face to face. That is the glory of heaven revealed. Let's pray. God, would you awaken and arouse in us a new desire to know you more and to know you more accurately and not for the sake of spiritual or intellectual gluttony, not to pass the test of knowing what it's called uh, the, the big words that we can use, but instead, because we both want to be good stewards of the truth of who you are, and we personally need to know who you are because the storm's coming, and brokenness hits, and betrayal comes, and the church can fail us, and everything, but you never will. Would you reignite that passion inside of each of us? Would you, would you teach us to seek your word, not for its own sake, not to check something off a list, but that it would actually have productive value for us to know who you are and to love you more deeply for the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. Do you know me pray? Amen.